What's the matter? Matt's about- is on the phone. You have to whisper. Oh, Matt's is on the phone? Yeah, he's on the phone. That's great. You guys are supposed to be here 12 minutes ago, but I'm glad that now I called you and you're on the phone. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. I pulled a Freddie Medina this morning or last night. Do you know what that means? Oh. Well, Freddie Medina. That's a throwback name, Freddie <laughs> Medina. Shout out. Um, but I have no idea what you mean. Yeah. Yes. It's a zero. A phrase that's got harder coined um, after a conversation with Freddie Medina. I can't remember what the context was, but they were asking people like what what their sleep habits were when they went to bed and stuff. And Freddie Medina, who was a Ecuadorian seminarian. Uh, really bright guy. I don't remember his English being super powerful, though. Um, he said something like, well, sometimes I'll stay up till past midnight, one in the morning. And other times I'll just get back from dinner and go right to bed. <laughs> and from then on, it became pulling a Freddie Medina to uh, to go to bed at like six in the afternoon or something. <laughs> so last night, Smokes. I went... Uh, Normally on Sundays I go up to see my family, but I figured I'll probably see him this week or something, and my dad wasn't around, so I stayed here. I went for a run around four, and then uh, came back and ate something, and then I was like, well, I don't want to drink a coffee, but I'm kind of tired, because if I drink a coffee now, I won't be able to get to sleep later. And I thought, well, what do I even need to stay up for? I could just go to bed now, wake up super early and drink coffee, and read and Whoa. do the same things that I would do right now, except it would be tomorrow, super early. It sounds amazing. Yeah, so, so I just did it because I was, you know, my pastor's away. It's his day off on Monday, so he was gone. House is empty. I'm just like, quiet house, quiet as a mouse. Head on the bed, you're dead. Slept till wow. 4.30 in the morning. Got like nine hours of sleep. And, Whoa. Uh, yeah, I got up, read it. I mean, did my prayers and everything. And then I read a chapter of, uh, been reading Love and Responsibility by Carol Waitula. Who's that? He was a former pope. Oh, mm-hmm. huh. Like 1800s? <laughs> yeah, a little known guy. Yeah, okay. I think, she, I think you actually pronounce it Watilla. <laughs> I, I hardly ever say it because I really actually don't know how to say Do you know, Rob? You're a fan, right? Big fan, big fan. I've always heard it. <laughs> yeah, big fan. I've always heard it Votiwa. Votiwa. I don't know if that, I mean, that could be really bad. Is the L, the L in it? A wa sound or an L sound? Is it like Waitiwa or Waitila? Well, I think the first one. It's I would think it's Waitiwa, but well, I think the W is more V sounding, like and I and Wait-tiwa. the L is because I talked to Lucas Pika one time, and he said he pronounces his name more like Ukash, so Waitiwa. Like you don't You're really the, the L in Lukash is like Ukash. Ukash. Yeah, it like feeds I'm into. I'm sure you're saying that wrong. <laughs> no, I'm super serious. I'm I am 100 serious about I'm that. Super serial guys. I'm super serial. Jeez. Remember, pig is real. <laughs> yeah, so well, that's been, awesome. I read so that. what time did you go to bed? By the way, um, I got in bed at about 7:40 and probably was asleep by eight. I love that's, that. That's See, that's a epic. little bit too early for mm-hmm. me. 
about every other week I do like like in bed like eight twenty eight thirty mm-hmm. asleep by nine Ooh. and those are tremendous. Yeah. Well, I think in fairness, I think a pure Medina is like six thirty seven o'clock bedtime. Right, and you probably wake up in the middle of the night like two in the morning. You're a wannabe. That Medina. would be awful. I would hate that. Uh the guy I almost had as my spiritual director in seminary, Father. You guys know him. He's Boston accent. He was like Mother Teresa's spiritual director. Oh, yeah. What's his name? Uh, Henchy. Joe Henchy. Yeah. Father Henchy, I guess, would go to bed at like six and wake up at three in the morning and he would do all his prayers and stuff at night. Yeah, in the middle of the night. One of my grandpa's, my mom's dad, um, they tell stories of him. He died when I was like seven, I think, seven or eight. Um, so I remember him some, but they said he would go to he like would always do that. He would go to bed super early, but then he'd be up at like three thirty or four. Hmm. Always. I wonder if that's an introvert habit. You know, people say morning morning person or a night owl, but I think also what I like about early mornings is I I think I a natural my natural disposition is to stay up later and sleep in later. Mm. But I like the early morning quiet because I don't know, it just seems like so much fresher. Mm-hmm. Than the nighttime, you know, at yeah. nighttime you still have all of the noise in your head from the day, but after a night's sleep, it's like I don't know, you know, in the in elementary school where you'd erase the chalkboard all day and it would still, at the by the end it was all dusty and white, but then in the morning like the janitor had come in and washed it with a sponge, and oh, the yeah. blackboard was just jet black, so fresh. I feel like yeah. that's your mind in the morning is like the janitor came in and wiped it with a sponge. Keeping it fresh. Dude, right. this is... I, I got a couple thoughts pinging around in my head. Maybe we could... Okay, I'm not going to say it. Don't, don't worry. I will not I will not talk <laughs> about it. I was about to come about. through the microphone and slap what, you, dude. What are you even <laughs> talking about? We will next? not talk about the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. <clears throat> uh, so I pulled the anti-Freddy Medina. Hmm. Well, I didn't even know if it's the anti-Freddy Medina, but I got in bed at a pretty good hour last night, like 10, 10.30, and just was doing night prayer up in my bed. Totally fell asleep doing night prayer, mm. <laughs> which <clears throat> it was towards the I can't the absolve end. you of that over the internet, by the way. Dude. I, I mm-hmm. do remember I do remember praying mm-hmm. the protect us, Lord, as we stay awake, watch over us as we sleep. Before and after, so I mm. I literally got to the very end. That's that's you're talking just for people that don't pray that. That's like <laughs> a matter of four seconds. Yeah, yeah. Right. you're talking yep. about. Well, yep. plus the hell. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're talking. Sorry, Rob. I actually love our lady. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is all. That's all aside. But what happened was uh, when I woke up at five thirty when my alarm went off. The, my light was still on and it had this effect where I was like, mm. dude, I it like felt like I never really got to sleep. Right. And, and it was like cheapened the good sleep that I, I think I legitimately got. But it, it kind of ruined that freshness feeling mm-hmm. where I woke up and it was like a remnant of the day before had carried over and lingered with me. And as a matter of fact, that's what I woke up into. So just like I never had that moment of like turning off the day. Right. Because like what was going through my mind as you were talking and I was thinking about my own Freddie Medina going on. Um, just going to totally steal that and use that for whatever Yours was the anti-Medina. No, 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 no. That was Medina adjacent. Sort of. Sort of. Well, because it sounds like Medina does early and super late. He's like not an MBT guy. Well, so maybe I did do an anti-Medina. I don't know. So, (laughs) 
But what a cool thing it is that every single day we get to wake, like we get new days. Mm-hmm. The fact that I can wake up and have a whole new day to start out with everything is, I love that. Right. And I, that was ruined last night. <laughs> it will not happen again. They took that from me. <clears throat> Even the fact like there are, there are other times where I'll pray night prayer in the chair I'm sitting in right now, <laughs> but I'll conk out doing night prayer here. <laughs> and there are times where I've woken up at like, 2:30 in the morning and it'll the miss it'll be in my the breather will be in my lap and i'll just pick up where i left off finish it and then go hop in bed and and turn off the lights mm-hmm. and waking up that's it's such old man stuff oh dude. that is wow. pretty old man <laughs> Holy cow. but it still has this feeling of of like when i wake up in the morning i have a fresh start new yeah, day you rebooted new day i totally rebooted mm-hmm. yep the chalkboard <clears throat> is clean yeah yeah jet black Jet black chalkboard. That's pretty cool. So I um I ran a 5K on Saturday, and I won. Speaking of old man stuff, I won my like uh, not quite super old, but not young man group anymore. There was nine of us in the 30s, and I, Congrats. I was the first one to finish. So I was pretty pumped about that. Way nice, to go, dude. man! Thanks, Way dude. to go! So I got a medal. <laughs> Are you wearing it right now? <laughs> of course, I haven't taken it off. I'm wearing it under my shirt though, so. Yes. Hey, can you send a photo of that at some point to our little group chat on text? Sure, sure. Yes. I'll do that right now. Send, my, send uh, I actually took a picture earlier with it on um, for my mom. <laughs> I'm not wearing it right now, obviously. <laughs> Dom, obviously, check this out. obviously, <laughs> obviously, obviously. Yeah, yes. no, it was it was cool. I actually trained for it, so uh, I was pumped that I succeeded. I I ran at twenty three thirty one. Is that good? Wow. For a 5K. Mm-hmm. That's tremendous. Seven Way minute, 30, 35 pace. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's you know what? It made, it made me kind of want to, because um, I had fun doing it, and it made me kind of want to go to other people's 5Ks. Like, this is not that hard to do. Wait, you what could, was the 5K? It was for our school. So I was just like, I thought. No way. Yeah, I thought, why not? uh it was really well advertised. We probably had a hundred, a little over a hundred runners, um, but they had a one mile walk and stuff. It was like a fun, fun run kind of deal for the kids. Um, so all in all, it was probably like 200, 300 people. So it was a successful event, but it's, it's just fun to, I know people do the marathon and stuff and that's supposed to be really fun, but I cannot imagine. Are you running the marathon, Mike, or did you? Yeah, no, I'm running the marathon. That's right. I'm kind of dreading it, oh existentially dreading it. But it'll be it'll be great. Mm-hmm. Just the fact of running 26 that's miles. That's many miles. Gosh, that's like eight mini miles. Whoa, that's a nice medal, man. We just got it. <laughs> <laughs> Look at those pearly whites, though. That's a big smile. Well, I'm pretty happy about myself. It must be yeah, pretty, that's I a very re- good medal. I remember you wearing that Coca-Cola fleece at Mundelein, by you know, the way. That's a gift Total of, side note. That's a gift of uh, Father Kyle Mano of uh, breakdancing fame. <clears throat> and now, oh my gosh, I'm going to put this in the in the show notes for this episode, but he's doing a, a show called Priest with a Mic. Oh gosh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, and he just goes around. It was like, it, I saw the preview on Facebook and it looks like he's in LA. Uh, Wait, this is Kyle Mano? Yeah, he's just on the street. <laughs> um, and he asked people like, 
hey, what do you think happens when you die? And he's wearing his clerics and people are, you know, always want to be on TV. So he starts up all these religious conversations on the street and, you know, he's him. So he's funny and charismatic. I said, that's a perfect fit for that guy. Wow. Is totally so is it on YouTube or what's it on? Um, I'll find it. I saw it on Twitter, which Dude. I think linked to Facebook, but it's supposedly Man, it's coming soon. Man. Wow. That'll be great. In yeah. L.A.? Put that in the notes. Yeah, I, I, was, I, I didn't know why it was. It looked like L.A. I can't remember why I thought that. There was some, something that he showed that made me think that. Was there like tons of movie stars in the background? Yeah, I think he interviewed a movie star. The celebs, you know? Mm-hmm. Rockford does look a lot like L.A. So <laughs> I've heard that. I've, no, I have heard that. Got to be careful with that one. Can I just say how great my Sunday was? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Actually, talk about it. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, my, my good friend uh, Martha came out to visit this weekend. So uh, I was on a, a focus team with her. And well, she was on the Haiti trip with us. And so she came out to Monday just to do a little like semi retreat slash visit. Super great weekend. But we went to mass here in the morning. I deaconed the mass here and we ate brunch and then we just headed down to the city amidst all the mid-April ice mm-hmm. that Chicago blessed Chaos. us with. And, uh, but we went to, uh, the sound of music on Broadway, which was so awesome. And then we met Mets for dinner and it was a great, it was a really great Sunday, huh. but I had, ne- I had never seen the sound of music before and it was awesome. Like so good. I need to go to more theater shows, but have you seen the sound of music, dude? Wow. That's a phrase I will never utter. I need to go to more theater shows. I just, I can't get next to the whole, Sound of Music is a musical, correct? It has to be. I know it's a movie too, but it's musical theater. I, I don't know why I cannot abide musical theater. I'm sorry. I know that people love it. Hamilton and all the rest. Wait, did you not see Les Mis? I, I did in, yes, but I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is with the songs. I just, uh, I don't get it. And I, I don't want this to turn into a Martian thing, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate that you appreciate it. Oh, gosh. Let's just move on, honestly. <laughs> like, let's just move on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't, isn't it a story about a, isn't there a nun in that? Doesn't matter. Doesn't let's, matter. it's done. Nope. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, finished in a matter of a day i finished all of spirit of the liturgy by uh josef ratzinger i'm i'm on a a pope kick right now um have you ever read that book i've read parts of it i've not read it front like cover to cover wait you read it in a day yeah i got really into it it's not it's not extremely long um i kind of made a list i have a list right here of of books that i have just been meaning to read but never did because I'd start them and then not finish them like that one uh the one I'm on now love and responsibility Dr. Barrett said that she read that uh and it made her become a catholic uh, yeah mhm so, we read spirit of the liturgy for the beginnings of Karsten's um principles of mm-hmm. s- principles of sacred liturgy I class I remember in that book it blew my mind when he was talking about what sacrifice actually means did you get that? I'm, well, I'm sure you read that part of like just literally to make something holy mm-hmm. is the roots of the word sacrifice and his kind of little uh, 
exegesis on that. I yeah. remember that being really good. Well, his his whole idea that I think is, um, to me, important, uh, especially for like the debates of today about the liturgy, is the is the already but not yet. It's the whole eschatological tension idea. And then the other big thing for him is the cosmos is part of the liturgy. Like we, along with the whole world, are awaiting the coming of Christ. You know, we're connected to the saving events of uh, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday uh, through the Mass, but also the Mass is pulling us forward and, as it were, like ushering in the new world. But um, I thought several times of a of a kind of tagline that the Franciscans of the Eucharist have that you can't see Jesus in the poor until you can see him in the Eucharist or something along those lines. Have you ever heard them say that? I haven't heard them say that, but I've heard I've heard that before. Um, maybe, maybe it was them. I don't know. I think that's really true, and it's a shortcut that um, I think certain kind of modern. Uh, liberal interpretations of of the liturgy were tempted to take, which is like the whole "you are Eucharist" to me. And did you guys ever read that article I wrote about that? By the way, I did. Yeah, we I both did. did. I liked um, it very much. Yeah, that that still chafes me. Like that that idea that you can skip um, the symbol, skip the sacrament, and go straight to the the res, you know, and be like, "Well, no, you, I see Christ in my neighbor," or you know, the worshiping community is the body of Christ that, you know, we should be less fixated on the sacrifice on the altar and all this kind of Old Testament sort of thinking. Um, but that skips ahead to the it, it, like it's it's the it's too much already and not enough. Not yet. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, the presence of God is in my neighbor and is in the entire body of Christ, in the worshiping community, in the priest, in the. Um, world, you know, in nature, but it's not all the way. Like God will be all in all in the fullness of time when Christ comes in glory. And but what the what the liturgy is, or what the liturgy does is like pull us forward towards that future and pulls the future toward us in the present. You know, um, and so it's through the lens of the Eucharist and the other sacraments, but most of all the Eucharist, because it's the only one that's the actual presence of God, not just the presence of his power. Um, that then you can, if you if you can see, like our problem is that we see too much. There was this great part where he talks about how the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know how the, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Mm-hmm. There's a direct... Um, I don't know what you'd call it. It's the, it's the same exact words, but in Greek, um, <clears throat> that were said of Adam and Eve when they sinned, that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. Um, there's a certain like, so Adam and Eve's eyes are open to see the externals, you know, but their eyes are closed. They're kind of blinded to the interior reality, which is the person. And that's sort of what John Paul II is talking about, love and responsibility, is that a person must always be respected as a person because they have their own interior life. Unlike a rock or a plant or an animal, a person has this interior reality. And so what Adam and Eve were blind to was the person behind the external, the person behind the body. So they're tempted, say, to lust or to to use each other for their own benefit or ego. 
And what happens to the disciples in the road to Emmaus in the Eucharist when Christ breaks the bread is that their eyes are opened um, again, except to now see the interior. They see what's inside, you know. They have the, their eyes open to penetrate the reality of what's really happening in the Eucharist, which is that Christ becomes present. And that opens the eyes of a believer over over your lifetime. And, you know, like you receive the, we, we receive communion every day, right? And usually you don't have a profound experience of like all of a sudden seeing something you didn't see before. But over time, it has this effect. Um, sometimes it's most noticeable when you don't have an opportunity to receive communion someday and you're used to receiving communion every day. You're like, wow, something's missing, you know? Um, but that's like the slow effect of grace drawing us into the new cosmos and drawing the new cosmos to us. So I don't know. I thought that idea is really good and, and it makes sense of why, why the sacrificial aspect of the mass, why, why the sacred, why the separation of sacred and profane, because reality is still being sifted. It's not all sacred yet. There is still profane. There's still sin, you know? Um, anyways, yeah, that's one of the big, I mean, everything you're talking about is like stuff that we cover in, in DMAG's liturgical movement course. Because mm-hmm. his big, I mean, all these different spirit of the liturgies that have come out really the past century or so, Gardini, then Ratzinger, then there's, I mean, even DMAG's, his is architecture in the spirit of the liturgy. Um, so it's this this idea that the liturgy is something that, is always happening at all times and all places since the one sacrifice of Christ, because it's this perfect offering to the father of Jesus, which Jesus brings all of creation. He assumed he assumes all of creation with him. And the more that we participate in the word glorifying the father, AKA like us offering up our sacrifice with Jesus, um, then the more that that reality, heavenly reality is made present here on earth. So he would say like the mass is a heightened and like perfected celebration of the always occurring perfect like praise to the father that Jesus participates in, which is why the priest as head is always praying to the father. And he's asking the people, your, my sacrifice and yours join our sacrifices together with Jesus. And it, it's his perfect sacrifice, which is is really, like, Barron talked about it on the retreat with von Balthasar. He said it's not Jesus' um, death on the cross, and I, people may, you know, have, have little nuanced things with this, but it's not uh, because he suffered so much or because it was so agonizing or it was so bloody that the Father says, okay, this is the perfect sacrifice. But he's so amazed by the extent of love that Jesus pours out to the Father that it's really like the father being completely enamored by the perfect gift of love that Jesus is showing to the father. So it's him not, and it's him not forgetting about our sin, but like almost overlooking our sin because he's so enamored by this perfect sacrifice of his son, of this Hmm. complete gift of love that it like almost in a sense distracts him and says like, who cares about that? Look how beautiful this, this loving, uh, loving act of Jesus is. So yeah, he has a similar, I'm reading, uh, heaven and stone and glass right now, which is by Baron, okay. but he has a chapter yeah, yeah. on, um, gargoyles in the, 
in the Gothic cathedrals. But anyway, just to your point, he makes a similar, and I remember him talking about that now in the retreat. I'd kind of forgotten that. Um, but he talks about, he, he uses it um, just to talk about what the architects would kind of use gargoyles for, but he talks a lot about like Chesterton in this chapter about, and just like the whole notion of like, what's the Chesterton quote of like, um, angels can fly because they they take themselves so, so, so lightly. lightly. And then he kind of like, he brings a chapter together talking about like God's great joke, which I think he's talked about in, in other stuff as well of like the coming together of opposites in like in, you know, is oftentimes what creates humor. And so it's like, but to your point, it's like this great jest of, of God, of like this, this God man, like on a cross, it's like the joke is so good that, um, like that's what in a sense, like wins over the, the father. So it's an, it's a similar idea how he walks through it. It's very, I mean, to take something like gargoyles and medieval architecture and, and use that in the reflection is very, yeah. very good. Yeah, and I didn't say it. I mean, I wish I had said it a little bit better there, but but it's amazing to think about liturgy in that way because um, it centers like looking at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is oftentimes we can get really stuck on like very unbelievable, important, like powerful stuff, like how much he did suffer and die and, you know, just the weight of what he bore. But all of those things are essentially accidental characteristics to the uh, to the primary act which is God loving us and then the act of love resulted in all of these you know all of these subsequent things but at the heart of it like that's what the crucifix is is it is the perfect oblation is the perfect sacrifice offered to the father so the I mean and this is kind of in contrast to what Protestants believe but they believe that it was one sacrifice that happened vicarious penal substitution that it's done and now all of our sins are washed away well when you look at liturgy the way that like baron presents it and ratzinger presents it as a participation and a so it's a fulfillment of the old testament that the old testament is a shadow that is fulfilled in the present Mm -hmm. and then the future is coming backwards and meeting the present so it's this the present is fulfilling the old and receiving the new all at the same time, mm-hmm. which is like, think about salvation history always occurring in the renewal of this covenant every time that we celebrate the mass. And so what's actually happening is us participating in something that's always going on, not that it's once done and that's, that's it, but it's us sharing in this continual perfect, like singing of love from the word to the father and that's what we get to participate in, which is so beautiful because then you have the opportunity for divinization and theosis and like actual transformation and renewal, not just the white blanket. So if mm-hmm. we're actually co-offering with Christ, then the mass is something totally different than just Jesus like, or, you know, pouring blood all over us or, or like what, however you want to imagine that, but draw an image to it. But it's us being Jesus, like with Jesus legitimately. Mm-hmm offering a sacrifice to the Father. And then in that, like divine life pours out to the whole world, which is, like, that's an unbelievable reality if that's actually what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how to teach that because I struggle to remember it oftentimes, even mm. myself during Mass. Um, so I wish I knew that better. Or like, I wish I could do it better. Uh, but that's an unbelievable reality. 
that that's what happens at mass. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interior. So it's, I mean, it's invisible, but it's always with the visible signs and it's all these paradoxes that come together. But one, one thing that I notice is, uh, just how far from that I am. Like how, when you really think about what it means to be divinized, to become another Christ, like, uh, like what you're saying is that this sacrifice happened once for all. Sure. Yes. It was enough to, to, um, satisfy, to make satisfaction for our sin and to open up the way to justification for all of us. But like this uniquely Catholic way of looking at salvation is that, um, it's offered once for all, but it's also offered always. And, um, we are to participate. That's to become our sacrifice. Like, uh, Calvary. I don't know. It's like to, to me, the whole idea of the Holy sacrifice of the mass and the representation of Calvary on the altar is that it stretches it, 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 um, what do you, what do you call it? Yeah. Stretches the incarnation forward in time and space. Like it's, it's supposed to happen everywhere and in all times, you know, not just 2000 years ago in front of a couple people, everyone is supposed to be witness to the ultimate act of God's love, which is, uh, the sacrifice of his only son for us and that we become him. Like we're, we, the, the most united you can be to a person is to become one flesh with them. And it's even more intimate. Communion is an even more intimate union than the union of spouses say in the marital act. It's like, this is a spiritual and a physical communion with the sacrificed and yet living body of Christ, which we then become. But I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I think like I am so not there. Like I'm, I'm receiving it and day by day I'm but like if you really thought about what, what the saints experience in heaven, those who are in the unitive way, who to them, like the idea of sinning, of doing anything that would uh, uh, wound their relationship with God is just unthinkable, inconceivable. Versus my daily experience, which is that I'm just always teetering on the edge of sin, you know, um, whether through laziness or thoughtlessness or egotism, pride, any of the deadly sins, really. Um, we're all vulnerable all the time. It's like, what, what would it really be like to be totally, I don't know, impervious to temptation or not impervious, but, but just like um, totally divinized? And that I think is why we also have to suffer because um, part of what and why even Jesus had to suffer because part of the temptation, part of what makes us so um, blind, like in the state of original sin, is that we think we can do anything on our own. You know what I mean? Like I have these capabilities, like whether physical or intellectual or uh, social, like I can do these things by myself and every once in a while I need God's grace, you know? Um, but it's all an illusion. Like everything is a gift. Like St. Therese says, everything is grace. So what suffering does, I think is just makes you more and more aware of that. And even losing things and people that you love makes you more and more long for, like I thought the line I was praying with earlier this week, um, about treasure in heaven, like store it where your heart, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also like, what if I, 
really did. What if you did that? What if you stored all of your treasure in heaven and you didn't have anything here on earth like some, some people have done? Uh, that would be very different than the way I live, I think. Um, I mean, I'm getting there and I believe in it, but you know what I'm saying? Did I lose you guys? Yeah, no, 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 I'm here. Mm-hmm. I'm here. Um, are, are you saying you like you're too worldly? What are you saying? I'm not. Say, I'm not trying to get down on myself or anything like that. I'm just saying, like when you when you encounter the awesome reality of who Jesus is and what it means to become Him, like divinized. Like, don't you ever just think, who the heck am I? You know, like that's just a million light years away. Um, but at the same time, it's not, it's not like a, oh, if I just try harder, if I'm more disciplined, it's like you have to let him go all the way to the bottom and, and read it, root out every little bit of self-reliance that you have, or every little bit of false belief about the world or you or your relationship with God and let him completely overwhelm you with his love. And it's, it's very easy to like, to resist that, you know? Oh, yeah. I guess I'm thinking it's interesting because there's also, I just popped into my head, I guess, with that, maybe not intention with it, but like, uh, just, it just maybe how like important, this is kind of a simple way to say it, but like just how important the saints are to like both our tradition and like getting plugged into this reality. Um, and I mean, and it, I guess I, I just think in terms of like, as I, I feel like as I've gotten to know certain saints more and more, and I think just like the communion of saints in general, like there's this consistent thread of, even though some of them have done like really incredible things, um, like I'm just more and more convinced like where they were like most transformed was oftentimes like the ordinary kind of day to day stuff. And like they were, and not always. I mean, you can you can poke holes in that, too. Um, but I don't know. They were just like the best at like being like the best of human qualities as well. Just like kind and uh, simple and patient and like devoted. Their life was just about one thing: loving, loving God. So. Uh, I don't know that that's not really clear. It just it popped in my head when you were no I, talking well, about that. I, I think it, like, it's well it's taken. Just, Go ahead. No, that's that? it. I mean, that that's it for now. I, I was I'll thinking about JP two, for instance. Like uh, speaking, yeah, of saints, I was too. Honestly, that's exactly who I was thinking. Like of. people say that he would remember your name and your face for years. Like he, he was the Pope, and everybody knew him. But what impressed people so much was that you know you hear these stories where ten years later he remembers having dinner with you when he was an archbishop or something like that. I heard some story of a priest once who he's, he remembered him. And, um, I don't think he even remembered having eaten dinner with Carol Wojtyla. Um, but the, I mean, his whole idea of like treating people as persons, maybe that's what made me think of this was the personalistic norm is what he kind of bases his whole, whole ethics on and love and responsibility is about sexual, uh, morality in particular, but, his whole point is that the only reason that there is sexual morality or that there should be, you know, ethics and, and morals around the idea of sexuality is because human beings, a.k.a. persons, have a sexuality. They are male and female and they 
um, you know, for the existence of the human race, there needs to be um, sex. And so since persons are engaging in sex, then there must be morality because persons are never to be used as a means to an end. Um, so, just, I mean, just like persons do business or persons, um, whatever, do anything. Anything that is done by a person must be uh, done with this respect for for other persons. That's what the great commandment of love God above all else and love your neighbors yourself, what it comes from. Um, well, it comes from Jesus, but it's it's basically nested in this norm that persons are to be respected above all else. They're ends in themselves. And I thought to myself, how often do I, either in my mind, mostly in my mind, not treat persons as ends in themselves? You know, all of the different ways I do that. Just take one example in the car. See. Yeah, I see. You know what I mean? Like, I ju mm -hmm. you're just in my way. All these people are in my way all the time. But they're all persons, you know? Yeah. It's just like, what would it be like to be like JP2? Or, I mean, what we're talking about is divinization. What would it be like to be Christ and see the, you know, 5,000 and have your heart just cry out for them and, and multiply the loaves? And, and just to live like that, it would it'd be... I mean, it wouldn't be hard. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's it's actually a more free way to live is to is to sacrifice your freedom on the altar of love. But it's uh, very hard for human beings who lack that confidence that if I give my whole self away, you know, it's the easiest thing to give 95% and keep 5 for, for yourself. Um, but I don't know. I still think that needs like a little bit more, even how you said that, it needs a little bit more like concreteness or something because i mean even taking jp2 like i'm sure he also got like very, very frustrated with people and right. showed it now and then like even the car example it's kind of like um i've been thinking a lot in prayer just in terms of like kingdom kingdom has like continually come up and especially in like the family structure and like that's honestly that's just where you see the kingdom of god present and like I, I don't know it's been cool reflections over the past few weeks of like seeing that um lived out but you just think about it in terms of uh families and that's i think sometimes i mean there's a lot of brokenness in families certainly but sometimes like the greatest freedom in families is like the ability just to be ticked at each other hmm. and express it and also have it be grounded in like but i'm not like leaving you're not my brother it's not like you're not my brother after this mm -hmm. um but it, it's like because the freedom is there you have an ability to express it in a totally different way um which that's kind of like what i wish was present when i was ticked at someone like that cut in front of me in mm -hmm. a car so i don't know that's and i don't know i didn't want to like split too many hairs there but it was just like no and i think it's it when, that's also a good point um but i'd still say that like my brother, if I was mad at my brother, I would still, it might, it might border on whatever sin. If I'm, if I'm not moderate in my anger, if it's, it's like uncalled for, Sure, sure. but I still see him as a person, but there are a lot of people, especially, and, and as a human being, you can't know everybody. You can't love everybody with the same love, uh, on a natural level, like the same affection. Obviously you're going to have close friends and family and people you love, quote unquote, more than everybody else. But um, that idea of like not not ever thinking of or seeing or you or, or treating anyone as an object. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? 
that that's very hard um, to see the inner reality. Like I think the Saints. Why does why does JP two remember a person because he sees them as a person? Yeah, you know, of infinite value of of utter uniqueness, like an, a unique instantiation of God's love. There's a reverence there. Like C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says the most, what does he say, the most sacred thing you will encounter today besides the Eucharist is your neighbor, the immortal soul that's in front of you, you know? Um, that sort of way of being in the world, that, that's what I want. Um, so like so like the Thomas Merton thing, like seeing people shining like the sun on right, the like yeah. streets of Louisville, or yeah, whatever. Well, actually, yeah. that's a good example of what we were talking about earlier yep. too with the liturgy because, I mean, he's in Gethsemane <laughs> in this, Right. In this sort of like anticipatory eschatological way of life of like sharing everything in common, like celibacy, chastity, obedience, all that stuff is is living in the kingdom now. And then he goes out into the city of man and he sees the glory of of human beings like but they don't realize it because they can't see it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And that's in. Yeah. Even like bringing then into this discussion would be like, I'm curious of like, just even like bringing into the discussion. Yeah. Like celibacy and that, um, lived out well. And, um, like, what is that? Yeah. Does that allow you to see the world in a different way? I mean, I think it certainly allows you to experience love in a different way. Um, well, I think it's the. Um, I mean, you, you read John Paul II on sex and marriage, and you're like, this guy is the celibate, but I guarantee you, sure. he can run circles around any married person. Like, it's not, it's not. He knows the thing from looking in from the outside. He knows the inner reality that many people who actually live the reality don't know. And I right. think that um, part of that is. The Ratzinger idea of shadow image reality, that's what you were talking about, Mike, the the three stages in salvation. Yeah. That yeah, in the old old covenant you had the shadow, and in the new covenant you have the sacrament, which is the image, but then in heaven we'll we'll see him face to face. There'll be no more sacraments, no more mediation, it's just straight God. Um uh, to me it's like celibacy is celibacy for the kingdom. Um both in religious life and priesthood is, is somewhere between the image and the reality. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. It's the marriage is the image. Marriage is the sacrament of God's love for his people. But celibacy is in some ways like past that, but not quite to the reality. It's living as if you're in the kingdom now and it makes present for mm-hmm. married couples, that kind of love. Um, that's why the two are complementary. Like celibacy doesn't make sense without marriage and marriage doesn't make sense without I mean, Christian marriage doesn't make sense without celibacy. Yep. Otherwise it's just an end in itself. But to us Christians, it's pointing to something higher and celibacy is like that between thing. So yeah, I do, I do see celibacy as instructive both to me as a celibate and to the, to the world. Mm-hmm. Which draws you up. It makes you sublimate that that desire to be. I mean, we are a body, and we are. This is getting pretty heavy, heady. Um, no, keep going. It's all right. 
yeah, I think, I think that we are, we're human beings, man. And, uh, I don't right. know, I'm just getting down with this, this whole idea of the person. And I, I guess I'd always heard that John Paul II was all about this personalist philosophy, you know, phenomenology and the thing unfolding itself. And, um, there's something there that, I mean, many people have discovered before me, but now I'm just discovering myself. That's it, really, really profound that the inner reality, you know, that, reveals itself and the person reveals him or herself to you and to the world slowly. And that's, that's to be revered very, uh, but that it's, you still like, you have to keep your feet on the ground that you are, uh, you have this lower nature that's, you know, the soul subsists in the body. Like it's a, you cannot separate the two, the soul and the body to, to treat the person as if it's the only thing matters about them is their soul is to do violence and to treat a person just as a body to be used for pleasure or whatever. Even if it's your mm -hmm. own body, that's also a violation. Um, there's something deeply profound about that, that even in celibacy where we don't, uh, we don't exercise this right to marriage. Um, and therefore like our sexual nature as men or women we still retain sexuality, but are like sublimated to this higher end of love of God and of his church, you know, but, he, but in a physical way, like I have to go drive to the hospital. I have to put my body in front of people, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so it is physical. Um, which is why, like, if it doesn't, if it doesn't come from the liturgy, if it doesn't come from something that's, that's hinting at a reality that, is glorified and beautiful and, and everlasting. I'm not just going to go out and spend my time in jails and hospitals and not have sex and all that stuff, you know, like none right. of that makes any sense to me unless, unless it's calling another world down, like as on earth as it is in heaven, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just easy. Yeah. I guess I was just thinking like, it's just, and I'm sure, and this is any like, vocation whatever but um it's just easy to like try to go back to the shadows with it you know mm -hmm. man or like fill it with something like fill it with something else but um yeah because it yeah i mean it, both things have to be present there like for it to be possible the kingdom like does actually need to be present here and now and we need to be like living in it um but yeah, just maybe in like more basic terms, like if this is it, like that kind of sucks, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why you can't, you, we can't always just be focused on one. Like we have to be bouncing back and forth. Yeah. You got to be taken both in simultaneously. The best example that just came to mind is, um, is actually, I think she was before she was Christian, but Edith Stein, when she was writing on empathy and, she was basically looking at this like profound, substantial reality that she was receiving partly through Husserl, like this, this unfolding of this idea, phenomenology, which is a, a sweet connection with JP two. But she started it. It started to deepen in a different way when I'm pretty sure it was World War One broke out, and she served as a nurse and mm -hmm. saw some crazy, crazy stuff. Mm. And so what it did was it forced this like pretty cerebral reality, a more theoretical um, concept to be played out live and in color. 
And I think what that did was she was putting the theory to the test. And because it is true that, you know, what she was writing on about empathy, it deepened it. It didn't demolish her theory, but it, it shined new light on it because she couldn't just look at the, the ideal or this like glorified reality of what it was. And you can't just like live it out on the front lines of World War One. that she had both. And I think in the, the experience of both for her at such an intense level, like really produced, uh, I mean, a lot of her writings, which are profoundly beautiful, which fed into JP2's writings as well as a phenomenologist. Hmm. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but it's that, it's that idea that like, if we're, we're not called to sit in mass all day or to sit in, in front of the blessed sacrament for 24 hours. Um, yeah, that's in a sense, Especially you could if say we're going to pull Medina every once in a while. You gotta yeah, get how the heck am I supposed to pull Medina if <laughs> yeah. I'm in worshiping the Eucharist? Yeah, just sit in a chapel. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> it would be, yeah, you just can't do that. But you also can't, It's it also just becomes philanthropy if if you are just trying to rid the world of poverty, which is, you know, it's just, yeah. it's not going to happen. So you have to have both that are going on simultaneously. This, uh, I mean, that's the FT, FT spiral nebula. That's all begins in the liturgy because it's Jesus, right? And you go <laughs> out to gonna Jesus. That's going to be one that listeners, that's a reference. Yeah, that's, yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. hey, we need to get a photo of that. Can we get a photo and put it on the website? Is, I don't even Oh, I got it. Yeah. yeah. I definitely photo. got it. it yeah, but I mean, the idea is that <clears throat> Vatican II made it so clear that the Eucharist is the source and summit of, of the Mass, but then of, of everything. And the Eucharist is the source and summit of the liturgy, and the liturgy is divine life pouring into and saving the entirety of the world. And so if that's all we do, then we don't actually go out and bring divine life with us to transform all of creation, to be the prolongation of Jesus who is saving the world. We participate in that really truly. So then you go out and actually, um, you know, serve the world and you bring that divine life to the world, but then you draw it back into the liturgy so it's the lung imagery, it's the it's a heartbeat. the ocean imagery, it's a heartbeat imagery. I mean, it can never be just the one thing. Um, it, it has to be this both simultaneously. Um, but the I, I mean, the amazing thing that like the story that you told about JP two is his capacity to love. I, like it has to have been unmatched. I mean, to meet as many people as he did. And the only reason he remembers that guy's name from 10 years ago is because he saw, like, this is an infinitely valuable mm-hmm. single instantation of God's love that's, for us. That's kind of what I was trying to get at earlier when talking about, like, the ordinariness of, like, his divinization. Yeah. Of, like, I just, I honestly think, like, maybe one of the coolest things about reading about him is, like, like how much he was, like, living for heaven but like that allowed him to enjoy the here and now and people that he encountered exponentially more than anybody else I have ever even like heard about. Right. Yeah. And and like, I mean, relationships are, they're amazing. They're life giving, but they're also tough and weighty and can be a challenge. And like, just to think about the capacity for like the capacity, the capacity of his humanity, it must've just been unbelievable to to bear as much as he did um and not in like a 
he's not God, you know? So, I mean, he's, he's a human and to remember faces and names like that, because I, I heard another story over Easter and I'm kind of just bouncing around, but, um, it was, well, it was my Bishop and he was the president of the USCCB at the time when everything broke in O2. And he remembers going over and like, he was just recounting stories of it. Very, very powerful. I mean, I would, I grew in deep love for, for my bishop listening to these stories. But he said he came in and it was like at the very end of the Easter octave. And they usually have this big greeting for the Pope. And he's speaking on behalf of the United States bishops, which at the time they thought the scandal was they would call it the American problem. Hmm. They, so they thought this was just a, a United States issue with our with our clergy here. And they have this big introduction, say, Holy Father, thank you so much for meeting us, da 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 And he goes, you know, Merry, uh, Happy Easter to you, and enjoy the resurrection. And he goes, thank you very much. So tell me about the problem. That was it. Huh. It, was, it was an acknowledgement of their greeting, probably like legitimate joy in their, ex- in their ex- like extending that, that hello and Happy Easter. But boom, right down to business. Like immediately, yeah. And he said he was he was struck by that. Hmm. Like he he was a man of love, and yet he was so firmly grounded. Hmm. Um, yeah, I so I don't know how you embody that. I don't know how you do that. Hmm. Yeah. I went walking around UIC's campus. This is gonna relate. Um, the other day, like last Friday, and uh, yeah. I hadn't really had a chance to do that. And I was up in the neighborhood, <clears throat> so I walked around and looked at the buildings and kind of tried to get a sense of where things were and where students went and hung out. And there was a big student center there on Halstead, and I went in there, and it's like, you know, the food court, bookstore um, kind of areas. And as I was walking around, it just occurred to me, like, to go up to some kids and talk to them. Mm-hmm. So I went up to a few groups and asked them you know, like if they're Catholic or if they'd ever heard of the Newman Center, if they'd ever gone there and a few had and not many had gone there. One girl had gone there for Ash Wednesday, which now I, f- I feel like is going to be Super Bowl. Like the whole year you're you're working on your Super Bowl ad. Like how are we going <laughs> to capitalize yeah. on the fact that a thousand people come through here on Ash Wednesday and normally normally 40 do or whatever. Um, but anyways, one of the conversations I got in was with these poli sci kids three smart looking they were all seniors i think and uh i said something like what would you what would attract you to a to a place like a newman center um what would you what would you be looking for if you were trying to invest invest yourself in in like your spiritual life or your your faith life and they were all they were kind of led by this one guy but more or less unanimous that it would be service oriented um, and that there would be like some sincerity in that, that, you know, I guess, I guess what I ended up feeling the impression of is like the, the purpose to them of Christianity was to make the world a better place. Um, which it is to some extent, uh, it kind of reminded me of that scene from the, the movie, I think it was son of God or something. It was kind of a Bible movie. And, um, there was a scene where, when Jesus calls Peter, uh, in the boat and he's like, where are we going? And he goes, Jesus says to him to change the world. I'm like, that is not in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus yeah. never said we're going to change the world. Um, 
and I, I don't know. It's, uh, it kind of left me think, feeling like, do I, I have a hard time believing that that's really all a person wants out of a life or B the church, you know, um, just to serve, you know, like I, I just want to be a good, cause even if, even if you are a really good person in the, you know, modern conventional sense that you give a lot of money away and that you're pretty selfless and that you do random acts of kindness or whatever our sort of conception of what that means to, to live a more or less selfless life, you still got to have something you're looking forward to, you know, like your vacations or something, or you really like cooking or, you know, some, some version of the yeah. good life where your life isn't just all about self-donation. Well, that's how, that's how C.S. Lewis starts the way to glory, isn't it? Is like, he doesn't word it like this, but you can't, like, you can't define a person's identity by a negative term. Mm -hmm. And if you ask anybody, I mean, this is, you know, probably in the 40s that he wrote this. But he said, if you ask anybody what is the most, like, important, if you ask any Christian in today's wor world what is the most important virtue, they'll say unselfishness. Mm -hmm. And he said, but the proper answer to that is love. Yeah. And it's, like, it's subtle, but it makes a tremendous difference. Because yeah. if you don't do it, then, like, you're defining yourself on something that you're not. I'm not selfish. Mm -hmm. But, like, okay, who or what are you? And that's what the liturgy does to me. And that's what beauty does to me. You know, it inflames right. love. It makes makes me want to love. Like, that's why it's great to go in a huge, gigantic, glorious cathedral and and pray. Because it makes you fall in love with God and with, with his creation and with his sometimes obnoxious creatures. Um, I just, I mean, and that's why I, I still think like, even if a thousand kids told me all I'm looking for at a Newman center is service opportunities. I'd still think the main thing here, it's great. We're going to have service opportunities. You have to, you have to have outlets for your, for your, that generosity to grow in holiness and discipleship. But first and foremost, this has to be a place where people encounter Christ and where that happens is the liturgy in the Eucharist. And so the place where we pray has to be, you know, worthy of the mysteries that are celebrated there. The the celebration itself has to be you know, a noble simplicity worthy of, of the Eucharist. And I think if you do that stuff right, people will encounter Christ and will be led by him to to give themselves away in love. But it will because it will be for a positive reason, not uh, I don't want to be selfish or, um, you know, and 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 all that like slinging the accusation of hypocrisy at Christians because they have art and churches. Yeah, I just don't. I, I'm that never. I guess that never resonated with me, so I still don't get it, and that's why I have a hard time believing it. You know, like one time outside of church, some guy was giving me the business. It was one of my first weekends here as a priest, and uh, this guy I'd never met was like, "Well, I don't really go to church because I, I think it's a bunch of you know, it's a bunch of baloney or blah blah blah." You know. If you really wanted to help the poor, then why wouldn't you, you know, sell all these Vatican and whatnot? And, oh, yeah. And he's like, you, you know, I, I saw this thing down in Brazil. It's like they have the poorest people in the world and they have this cathedral and the priests are all rich. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, in my head, I didn't say this, but you're going to you're going to lock yourself out of heaven because of some cathedral that you've never seen, <laughs> you know, like that you've heard about. You're going to stay out of belonging to Christ because of the, I mean, I just don't believe you. I don't believe that's the reason. I think you're afraid, you know, to, to like really become human. That's what Christ offers is like you, you become human, but you become human through dying, you know, 
you you start to see you you regain your sight uh, by by seeing past this world and seeing past its its uh, appearances to like where St. Francis jumps off his horse and, and sees the leper as the most beautiful creature, you know, that's what love does. But it, I mean, that's the upside down world of the gospel, but you can't just get there through being unselfish or being nice, you know? Um, and that cathedral belongs to the poor people too, you know? Oh yeah. We've talked about that, but yeah. Yeah, man, the image, like, for me, well, actually, this is from the old Deacon Metz homily down in Haiti on New Year's Eve when, like, the Haitian New Year was going off all around us and we had midnight mass with the sisters. But he talked about, like, the image of, like, the mother's heart of the church, or what, but just, like, the image of a heartbeat is what I remember. And I don't know if you told me this later, if you actually preached on it, but, like, the image was at Lourdes and was just, like, all of these, you know, kind of, like, the... The most vulnerable there, the sickest there, the weakest there were like leading the charge. And it is like if you stand up on top, like the imagery is like just this beautiful like coming in and then um, and going out. And if you don't have both, then it's pretty unhealthy mm-hmm. um, for anybody, you know, no matter um, no matter what. But yeah, and it seems like it does seem counterintuitive to um, so much of like the language that we hear so often today, but, um, to say that the most important virtue is unselfishness is just like, I don't know. That's just selling, like selling life very, very short. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, you have to live with passion, you know? It's gonna be the best vision of you. Gonna be the best vision. Follow your passion. <laughs> Follow your passion, man. That's a lie. Are you ready? Three dogs north are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.